Well, thank you for joining in prayer this morning. Uh, blessed time in our service. Luke chapter 2 in your Bibles, please. Luke 2, looking at verses 6 through 20 this morning. It has been six weeks since we focused upon the Gospel of Luke. I started a series, and we uh, spent many weeks preaching through um, those, that first chapter or so. We ended with the historical context of the, the book of Luke, uh, of the, particularly the birth of Jesus Christ, and it was a, a magnificent uh, opportunity for us to remember that God is in control as we saw how God wove history together to bring about the circumstances by which Jesus Christ would come, his reception would be prepared, even using the pagan Roman emperor, the Caesar, to bring about the taxation that got this poor little family from Nazareth to Bethlehem in order to fulfill, fulfill the prophecies of Messiah through the person of Jesus Christ. What a blessing it is to know, even as we consider our 4th of July and this weekend, what a blessing it is to know that God is in control, that he's in control of governments, that he's in control of kings, that, that these men, though they shake their fist at God and though they seek to usurp God at every turn, yet God is on the throne. And praise the Lord for that. Several weeks ago in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, we considered the historical setting which undergirds the arrival of the great God and the Messiah, Jesus Christ. It was a time of deep spiritual darkness, and it was a time of uncertainty, particularly in the land of Israel. Government was corrupt. It was the end of a long and dark road for the nation. The spiritual leaders of the land were corrupt and apostate. And we made that point that God is sovereign, that in the time of greatest darkness and opposition when Satan and his minions were being very successful at minimizing the testimony of God in the world, the very greatest witness the world has ever seen was brought into the world, born in humble circumstances. That's what we will consider this morning, his birth proper. And today we consider one of the most familiar accounts in our Bible, and probably one of the most well-known and familiar accounts in history, the birth of Jesus Christ. Indeed, our calendar revolves around the birth of Jesus Christ. The wicked people of the day have sought to strip that out by changing B.C. and A.D. to B.C.E. and to B.C. and B.C.E. B.C. meaning before Christ, A.D. Anno Domini in the year of our Lord. Well, they've changed that today to BCE, before Common Era, and CE, Common Era, in an attempt to remove Jesus Christ from history, but they can't do it because that zero is still on the calendar. And that zero between the BC and AD is still that, that time where we regard the birth of Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ, history revolves around him. History is built upon him. And we're going to consider the account of his birth this morning. Luke gives us by far the most thorough accounting of the events at hand, with very little being said of Jesus' birth in the other Gospels. But this is what we consider today. A day when the light shined into darkness, one of the largest and most important steps taken by God in his plan to redeem himself, redeem us, excuse me, unto himself. 
And this was the day that Jesus Christ came in flesh, the day that God became man. So we pick up in verse 6 of Luke chapter 2, and we read this. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. Now we need some context to that, so let's actually go back to verse 1, and we'll read through the first five verses together with it. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And here we find verse 6 in context. And so it was that while they were there, that being in Bethlehem, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. Joseph and his wife Mary had traveled to Bethlehem from Nazareth with, with her very, very pregnant. And the text tells us that in accordance with God's divine plan, while they were in Bethlehem, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And we read of this delivery. We read of the birth itself. The event is stated quite succinctly, in fact, quite, uh, quite uh, just briefly in verse 7. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Uh, the verse is, is actually quite self-explanatory. She had birth to the baby, and it was her firstborn son. She swaddled him. She wrapped him in swaddling clothes. And the text tells us that she laid him in a manger. Now, the word manger there is literally a feeding trough, and it was designed to feed cattle. Uh, that's because there was no room for them in the inn. Uh, this would not necessarily have been surprising considering uh, the circumstances of the day, both the culture as well as the decree of Caesar Augustus. People were coming from all over the region, into, uh, fr from all, all of the places around the, the region of Israel, of Judah, of Galilee, in order to go to their hometown, the town of their birth, the town of their lineage, so that they could take part in this census. It would appear that Joseph and Mary either didn't have any near relations with which they could stay, or those near relations had no room either, and any inn or hostel that, that they found was filled to capacity. Now, we actually have no record of where Jesus was born. Uh, we only have record of where she laid him after he, she was born, whether he was born in the stable or whether he was born in a hostel and then they just moved him to the stable. I don't know. Uh, the text doesn't tell us. But what the text does tell us is that he was laid in a manger following his birth. And so it is we find that Jesus is in a stable of sorts, in a feeding trough where you would feed cattle, and such is the humility of the birth of Christ. And we cannot lose that. That as Jesus Christ, as the King of Kings came into the world, he did not come to pomp and circumstance. He did not come to a, a line of people rejoicing. He came and he was born in an inauspicious circumstance without any fanfare. He was swaddled as a child would be. And he was placed in a feeding trough to lie there and to sleep. A humble substitute indeed for an infant crib. And that's really it for the birth itself. An uneventful birth, a simple human birth of a human baby. All of the interest in regard to Jesus' birth was his conception and, and the faithful response of Mary and Joseph. 
And in much the same way, the Bible takes great care to focus upon not so much the event of the birth itself, but the reaction of various people to his birth, both earthly and heavenly. And don't miss this. Don't miss the contrast between the simplicity and the humility of the event from a human perspective and the dramatic importance, the dramatic impact of the event from a spiritual perspective. My wife and I spent several years in Florida before we moved up here to Minnesota. Uh, we went there for, I, we were both there at college, and then I stayed on for seminary, and we, we were married for about three years down there, lived down there. And my wife and I, from time to time, would go to the beach. And one of the, the things about Pensacola and the beaches in Pensacola, Florida, where we were, is they have these things called riptides. And a riptide is when you have a underwater current. And because of the nature of the, the sea floor, there's like a funnel through which all the water is coming from below. And it pulls the water underneath the water, that, that underwater current, it pulls it through this one funnel. And it creates like a, a suction. And it's very, very strong. It's very, very strong. And the danger of riptides is that you can't see anything on the surface. The surface of the water, it might be a windy, breezy day and there are, there are waves, or it might be a still day and there's not even a rustling of water. But underneath the water, you might have these very strong riptides. And when you get in the water, if you get caught in one of these riptides, it pulls you out into the ocean. And there's really not a whole lot you can do about it. You, uh, you, you, you should not... They, they say, don't swim against it. Even strong swimmers, when they try to swim against riptides, will just get tired and they will drown. So you swim horizontally. You swim uh, perpendicular uh, to the riptide or parallel to the beach until you get out of it and then you can swim back to land. Anyway, the idea that I'm, I'm giving you, the visual I'm giving you, is something that looks inauspicious or simple from the surface, but underneath there's, there's major things happening. And that's kind of the idea of Jesus Christ's birth. It was just a night in Bethlehem. He was laid in a manger, swaddled. A baby was born during a census of this poor couple from Nazareth in Bethlehem for this census. Not a very exciting event. But oh, in heaven, the spiritual impact of that event, the shock wave of that event when Jesus was born throughout the spiritual realm, throughout history, is immense. Continuing in verses 8 and 9, the scriptures tell us, And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. We get just a little taste of the glory of this event. We get to peak peer through the curtain into the, the, the spiritual, the heavenly impact of this event in verses 8 through 14. The shepherds uh, were, were not a foreign thing to this area of the land of Israel, but we know from Scripture, in fact, that Bethlehem had quite a history of shepherds, right? In fact, David was a shepherd in Bethlehem at one time, and many other shepherds, no doubt, spent their days on the hills of Bethlehem watching their flocks both by day and by night. And as in David's day, so too in Jesus' day, there were shepherds in the fields watching their flocks. And in God's divine sovereignty, it was this group of men, it were these shepherds that were going to receive a great announcement. But not just any shepherds even. I mean, these were the, this was the night shift shepherds, right? 
This was the third shift. These were uh, not, not necessarily even the most honorable among the shepherds, the, the greatest among the shepherds. And God chooses to announce this glorious news of Messiah's birth to them. The angels were not sent to the chief priests on that night. The angels were not sent to the Pharisees or to the scribes, to the leaders in Israel. They would have been, no doubt, so busy congratulating themselves on the fact that the angel had chosen to appear to them that they would have forgotten all about the, the child in the manger. He didn't appear to the pagan king and tell him that his throne is about to be overtaken. The angel appeared to plain men, men who were busy doing their job, abiding in the field, watching their charge, being faithful to their position. But what a night this would be. The text tells us that the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and indeed they were sore afraid. We would presume that we do not know that the angel was Gabriel, like we saw in Luke chapter 1. Gabriel appeared to uh, Zechariah in the temple. Gabriel appeared to Mary. So we would presume that Gabriel is the angel appearing here. The text does not tell us that. Uh, it would be an assumption. And with this angel, the scriptures tell us that the, uh, the angel of the Lord came, and then also with him came a host. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But the glory of the Lord, the scriptures tell us, shone round about them, this angel, the shepherds, the glory of the Lord around them. The angel was in a fixed point, yet the glory of the Lord was on every side, illuminating them, potentially illuminating the entire area. And the text tells us that, that just like the appearance of the angel to Zechariah, and just like the appearance of the angel to Mary, and just like the appearance of an angel in the Old Testament, uh, uh, at every occasion, whether you're talking Isaiah or whether you're talking Daniel, just like the appearance of the angel in, in John in the book of Revelation of Jesus Christ, when they saw the angel, they were sore afraid. Such is the trend in every angelic appearance whether it's the uniqueness of the event at hand or whether it's the glory or whether it's the actual physical appearance of the angels, which we know from Ezekiel, some of them are pretty interesting looking. Something caused these men to be afraid. But along with this very typical reaction to angels, which was fear, comes the very typical response of the angel to that fear found in verses 10 and 11. The angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Fear not, the angel says. This is a day of joy, he says. It's a day of good tidings of great joy. Those two words, good tidings, our translation of the Greek word, which most of the time is translated in your Bible, gospel. Good news. I bring you good news. Good tidings. I bring you a gospel. And it's a good news which comes not only to them, not only to the, the shepherds, not just to the angels that were there, not just to Mary and Joseph, but he says, good news which shall be to all people. The event which the angel is about to announce is good tidings of great joy unto all people. Anywhere, anytime, all people will be blessed by this good news. And what is that good news? That unto them is born in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ, 
the Lord. Description of this child in three different perspectives. Savior, Christ, Lord. A Savior, one who would come to save them. One who would come to save all people from something. And though the shepherd did not, may not have fully understood, we who have read the history of Gabriel's announcement know full well what it is that the Savior is meant to save them from. We read in Matthew 121, the angel makes an announcement, this time to Joseph. We, we didn't read about Joseph and Luke and the angel's announcement to Joseph. But in Matthew 121, the angel uh, is speaking to Joseph and he says, and she, that would be Mary, shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. What is this Savior who would come? What was he going to save them from? He was going to save them from their sins. He is the Savior. Secondly, he is the Christ. The word, word literally meaning the Messiah, the promised one of Israel from the days of the patriarchs, the one that was promised all the way back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3.15, when the Bible says that there would be a seed of the woman who would come and crush the head of the serpent. That seed of the woman, that Messiah, that promised one, the Christ, this is he. And then finally, the Lord, one supreme in authority, connected strongly with the Hebrew title for God, Adonai. He is the Savior who is Christ the Lord. And the angel finishes his announcement in verse 12. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. The sign that they had found the Savior, the Christ, the Lord. Well, it says you'll, you'll find him in a feeding trough wrapped in swaddling clothes. You won't find him wrapped in a purple silk garment sitting in the Oak crib, you'll find him in a feeding trough, wrapped in swaddling clothes, humble, inauspicious. He wouldn't come above them. They wouldn't have to seek an audience with him. They wouldn't be stopped at the door by a whole bunch of guards saying, I'm sorry, you can't see the young king. The king of all creation was right there with them. The maker of heaven and earth was accessible to any man who would come looking for him. The Savior of all mankind was lying in a cattle trough. And they, even these humble night shepherds, had access to the King of Kings. Such has always been the message of the gospel. Jesus summed it up himself in John 6, 37. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. I won't turn away any man that comes to me. King of Kings accessible to all. Verses 13 and 14, following the angelic announcement, the, this text tells us, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. A fantastic announcement of the goodness of God. Now, if you have a, a, a different version of the Bible, a different translation translated from the Greek critical text as opposed to the King James Version, which is translated from the Greek Textus Receptus, a different Greek text altogether, your Bible will, will likely translate the angelic proclamation differently. Instead of translating it, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men, you'll read something to the, to the effect of glory to God in the highest and on earth, 
peace among those with whom he is pleased. And this comes from a, a slight tense variant between the two different Greek texts that redirects the goodwill of God from all men to just some men. And many argue that it makes more sense that the peace and goodwill which would extend from God would extend only toward those who have goodwill toward God, only those with whom God is pleased. But, but I, I don't really agree. I take exception to that line of thinking, and I'm troubled by that translational difference. We, we don't just read in the announcement here, peace and goodwill toward men, but in verse 10, Gabriel said to these shepherds that he brought good tidings which shall be to all people. All people. The good tidings are to all men. So if the good tidings are to all men, then why wouldn't the goodwill be extended to all men? Either way, the object of the angelic praise is the glory that is due unto God. This child is a gift from God to man. He represents the divine plan to redeem mankind from the curse of sin. He is the physical manifestation of God's grace, God's goodness, God's peace, and God's goodwill. This child tells the world that God loves them. This child tells the world that God wants them to be reconciled to him. And we continue reading in verses 15 and 16. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go, even unto Bethlehem, and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Not all three of them lying in a manger, just the babe lying in the manger, right? Uh, the shepherd goes to Bethlehem, and, and he goes to see this thing. That was a little bit of a joke. I don't do jokes very often in my sermons, but, uh, you know, it was, it, was, it was there for anyone who wants it. It's like when you put out that bowl of mints that, you know, they're there for anyone who wants it. Some people like the chalky mints, some people don't like the chalky mints, but I'll just throw it out there and see who wants them. They hurry, they went into the city, and just as the angel had said, they find the mother, they find Joseph, they find the babe lying in a manger. And, and this was enough for them. The angel announced it. He gave the sign with which they would know he was the child of God. The sign came to pass. They found the child wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. This is the Christ. This is the Lord. This is he of whom all generations of Israel had longed for and sought. The shepherds, having witnessed what is the essence of, of God's goodness to men could not but share what they had seen and what they had heard in verses 17 and 18. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherd. The shepherd went around, the shepherds went around. They said, look, we had an angel appear to us at night while we were watching our sheep. And he said, we'd find this baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And we went and we looked for him in Bethlehem and he was there. And they said that this baby would be our Savior, Jesus Christ, the Lord. Savior, Christ, Lord, saving us from our sins, redeeming us from, from our sins, the Lord of all, heaven and earth. And we found him. He's here. Now, quite overshadowed throughout all of this is the mother Mary. She who had borne this child, she who had spent nine months carrying the Messiah, and now imagine this mother. Imagine with me a mother's love 
Some of you don't have to imagine. Some of you know. The mother's love just after the birth of a baby. In fact, the scriptures tell us, they, they give that, that illustration of, of a woman who's travailed in birth, but she doesn't even remember it for the love that she has for the child that's in her hands. And as we consider that, she rejoices in this little one, this child. And imagine that these shepherds come having seen an angel who announced the birth of your son. And you realize at that moment, again, maybe, probably not for the first time as she had had nine months to think about this, but you realize again that this child is not your own. That this child is not just a gift to you, but rather you are the conduit through which this child would become a gift to the entire world. And so as the shepherds marveled over this young Christ child, we read in verse 19, but Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. That word literally meaning to, to join together or to consider. She's taking all of these events, birth, announcement of birth, Savior, Christ, angels, shepherds coming to rejoice. How did they know we were here? What's going on? Angels announced to them. Angel has now talked to Zacharias about my son, has now talked to uh, me about my son, has now talked to Joseph about my son, and, and has talked to these angels about my son. There's something special here. She didn't speak. She was just wondering, considering, marveling, putting all these pieces together in her mind, and she would need to because there were going to become some difficult emotional days for her. We'll talk about that next week. The shepherds, on the other hand, were anything but quiet, right? They're already out announcing the birth of Christ. Verse 20 says, The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. They were filled with praise. They were filled with goodness of God, uh, uh, with the goodness of God and with his goodness toward men. And today it's our privilege to do the same. Now, we've considered the birth of Jesus Christ. It's July. It's not, it's not December. So maybe it's a little bit of a unique time uh, in the church. But we're walking through Luke, and this is when we hit it. Certainly there's no bad time to consider the birth of our Savior. But let's apply with some points this morning. Let's walk away with some points that we can take about this event and how it applies to us. First off, as we apply this morning, Jesus Christ's birth reflects the extent of God's glory. Jesus Christ's birth reflects the extent of God's glory. Remember where this all began, with a virgin girl espoused to a husband living in Nazareth. By the miracle of the incarnation, where God becomes flesh, where God takes on human form, 100% God, 100% man, this young girl bore God, the second person of the Trinity, in human form from a virgin birth. Now we say that, and it's easy to describe by definition. God is made flesh and is born among men. The incarnate second person of the Trinity. We have all of these great ways that we describe Jesus Christ. God born in Bethlehem, promised by the prophets. But think about that with me. Consider the power and the glory of God that is represented in that God sent his son into the world to be made of man, uh, to be made a man, to take upon him human flesh, to suffer the indignities he suffered, to live <laughs> trapped, limited in such a body, 
to live under the elements of this world, under the influence of sin. Consider a creator who chooses to walk among his creation as one of them. Consider a creator who chooses to take upon himself the limits of his creation. I don't know if you're a creator, if you've ever created something, if you've built something, if you've built a computer, if you've put together a, a car, if you've, uh, made, if you've done woodworking, but to take upon yourself the limits of your creation as something far greater, something far higher than your creation. And we'd all kind of say that's crazy. But what if it were to redeem that creation? Well, then it's glorious. Then it's beautiful. Then it's amazing. It's, it's, it's not like man, is it? I tell this to the guys in the jail all the time. It's one of the illustrations I give them. If I were to build a computer and I hit the on button and nothing happened, or I hit the on button and it turned on, but it wouldn't do anything that I told it to do, well, as the creator of that computer, it's not doing what I tell it to do. What am I going to do with it? I'm going to kick it to the curb and I'm going to make a new one. But God didn't do that with us. He created us and we didn't do what he created us to do. We rebelled against him. And yet instead of saying... Let's wipe the slate clean. I'm going to start all over. I'm going to start anew. He said, I am going to die for them, to push them back to myself, to redeem them from the error of their own choices, to call them back. What a God, what glory reflected in Jesus Christ's birth. Secondly, Jesus Christ's birth embodies the essence of God's gospel. We even read the word today. I bring you good tidings. I bring you a gospel. I bring you good news. We, we often regard the essence of the gospel through a couple of different verses. John 3.16 being one of them. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The particulars of the gospel are described in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, which we memorized not long ago, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. The angel of the Lord came with these glad tidings of great joy, which should be to all people. The gospel is God's good news to men. But consider the gospel through the lens of Jesus Christ's birth. Jesus came, King of kings, Lord of lords, not in the halls of a king, but as a humble man, two humble men, nondescript birth. He didn't come to the proud or to the noble or to the powerful or to the notable. He didn't come to be set at the high table. He came in humility, announced to the lowly that the lowly might rejoice with heavens at the realization of God's great plan for the ages. The gospel is not some good old boys club. The gospel is not for the elite among us. It's not for the ones that can act the best or can pay the most or the ones that have the inside track on life. We're not Gnostics. We don't believe that we have secret knowledge that is just for us and that if you don't know it our way, then you don't get to know it. The gospel does not reach only to the best of the best the cream of the human crop. If I were God recruiting a kingdom, I would find the best of my creation, right? 
I'd find the strongest and the richest. That's human tendency. That would be what I would do if I were God, but I'm not God, nor are you. And God is not like man. If I, if I were God, I'd, I'd put them all on the earth and I'd wind it up and I'd let them fight each other and, and go after each other and weed each other out until I get the best of the best, the cream of the crop, and then I'd take that. But that's not what God has done. God reached down into this mortal existence and he placed his most precious jewel among the most ordinary of men. God's gospel makes no distinction of rank. God's gospel cares not for accomplishment. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is embodied in a humble child, serving out the first moments of life in humble circumstances, revered by humble night shepherds who praised God into the stillness of one night of thousands that would come and go in Bethlehem. The gospel is unpretentious as our Lord is unpretentious. The gospel comes to every race, every creed, every gender, every person. The gospel was meant for you. The gospel is not accompanied by pomp and circumstance and pride. But like that riptide I described earlier in the ocean, whose visible surface seems simple enough underneath their raging currents, like a iceberg where the tip of it is visible and yet there's so much more underneath. The gospel goes out as a simple offer of peace and goodwill toward men in the simplicity of believing on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. And yet underneath, Underneath lies all the power of the triune Godhead working on our behalf to free us from sin and to give us eternal life. Jesus Christ's birth reflects the extent of God's glory. Jesus Christ's birth embodies the essence of God's gospel. Third, Jesus Christ's birth proves that God loves you. God loves you. The angel of the Lord announced glad tidings of great joy unto all people. The heavenly host cried, Peace on earth and goodwill toward men. When God sent his only begotten son to this earth, the first declarations were that this gift was given to all men. That the humble event which took place that night was the very foundation of hope and peace and joy for mankind. Jesus Christ is God sending the very warmest of affections to the people of this world, to his creation. Jesus Christ is the epitome of God's glory, but he is so much more than that to you and me, isn't he? He's proof that God thinks of you. He's proof that God loves you. He's proof that God wants a relationship with you. Jesus Christ is proof that God wants you. Perhaps under the sound of my voice today, there are people who don't feel very loved, don't feel very wanted, who wonder if anybody really cares for them. Maybe you're lonely. Maybe you've been hurt by those closest to you. Maybe you're feeling vulnerable. Maybe you've been ignored. Maybe you, you've been marginalized. And you feel like nobody cares. And you feel like it doesn't matter anyway. But what if I told you that the God of the universe has you on his mind? What if I told you that the God of the universe loves you enough that he sent his only begotten son, the most precious thing to him, 
to this earth to bear your sin, to die on the cross so that you can have a relationship with him. That Jesus Christ in the manger represents the outstretched arms of peace and goodwill to you from God. Would the love and attentions of anyone else really matter if you have secured the love of the God of all creation? Now, this love has been extended, but it also needs to be received, accepted. The Bible tells us in John 1.12, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Jesus Christ is revealed as that babe in a manger, an open invitation, and yet an invitation which must be accepted. The gospel of Jesus Christ is this. You are a sinner. Your sin has separated you from fellowship with the holy God. God is holy. You are sinful. God is perfect. You are not. God is truth. You are darkness. You are error. God is light. Because of that separation, because of our sin, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. That's not just physical death. It's not just that our bodies get old and they run down and we die one day, but it is spiritual separation from God. That because of our sin, we have been separated not just in this life, but in the eternity that is to come. The wages of sin is death. Jesus Christ called it a place of burning, a place called hell, and then eventually the lake of fire, a place of eternal conscious torment. I quoted already, the wages of sin is death. Thank the Lord, the verse does not end there. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but in contrast, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the bad news is that you're a sinner. And you can't work yourself out of that sinful state. You can't do enough good works to get yourself out of that sinful state. You can't go to church enough. When you have done wrong, someone must pay for that wrong. It doesn't matter how much good you heap upon the bad. The bad is still there. It doesn't matter how quickly you try to climb out of the hole of your sin. That hole is getting deeper every day and you are getting farther from God. There's no way in your own power you can possibly make it to God. Not through good works, not through giving to your church, not through attending church, not through, through charity, not through baptism. Not, that none of, no physical thing can get you to God. But that's a good thing, not a bad thing. You know that? That's good news, not bad news. Because if, if you had to work to get to God, nobody in here could make it. So God wiped the slate clean. He said, I'm going to make it so that nobody can work to get to me. Instead, I'm going to send my son, Jesus Christ, to do the work. For as by one man sin entered into the world, so by one man salvation comes to men. So the Bible says that Jesus Christ was born on this earth, humble birth, laid in a manger. He grew up and he preached Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Preach the gospel of the kingdom to those who would hear. The Jews rejected him. He went to the Gentiles. Preached to the Samaritan woman. Healed those who would come unto him. He was killed. Rejected of men. 
And the Bible says that as he was, he was whipped, he was lashed, he was maimed, he was bruised, he was hung upon a cross, which is a form of execution, one of the most brutal in history. And as he hung there, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And the Bible says that as Jesus Christ was doing that on this earth, what was happening in the heavens, 2 Corinthians 5.21, is that God made Jesus to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God took all of his wrath for your sin and my sin, and he placed it on Jesus Christ on the cross on that day, and Jesus bore the cup of God's wrath. And the scriptures tell us that just as Jesus Christ bore the cup of our wrath, he made provision for us then to be able to bear his righteousness. So that John 3.16 tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And this is where the gift comes in, because it's a gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. A gift must be received. I could take this Bible, I could write your name in it, I could have it, it's purchased for you, and I could hold it out to you and say, this is for you, but if you walk away without having taken it, it is not yours. It's not yours until you receive the gift, and so too must you. And that's what it means to believe. To believe is not, I know that Jesus is God, so do the devils. To believe on the name of Jesus Christ, the name of a person in Scripture is not just their moniker. It's not just the letters of their name. It is the very essence of who they are. It's what they were. It's what they said. It's who they are. To believe on the name of Jesus Christ to be saved is to accept that Jesus is who he said he was. God in flesh, that he did what he said he did, which is he died on the cross, and then tell you that last part, after he died, he was put in a tomb, but he didn't stay there. Three days later, the Bible says he rose again from the dead in power and victory over sin, over death, over hell. And the Bible says that Jesus promised that those who followed him would have eternal life. And what validates that promise? Well, it's the very fact that Jesus raised from the dead. And because he lives, so too can we. Because Jesus lives, so too can we. If we will follow him, if we will accept the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we will say, yes, I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, that he was buried that he rose again the third day in victory. I believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven so that when I stand before God, I will have no other answer to tell than that Jesus, tell God when he asks me why I should enter into heaven, but that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. He was buried. He rose again, and I have believed it. I have staked my eternity upon it. Now, most of us in here today know the gospel. If you have never accepted the gospel... For yourself, may I encourage you to make the day, today that day where you say, yes, I am casting aside anything that I believe in. Hebrews describes it as repentance from dead works and faith toward God. No works, nothing that I can do can get me there. I'm, I'm rejecting any and every dead work. We've already talked about what those are. Goodness, morality, baptism, giving money, going to church, any of those things, they're dead works. None of those can get me to heaven. Repentance from dead works and faith toward God. And if you've never done that today, would you make today the day? Most of us have, however. Praise the Lord for that. You have, have this relationship. You have been initiated into the relationship with Jesus Christ. You know him and you know the Father through him, and that's a great thing. And that brings us to our final point today, which you need to hear. 
Folks, Jesus Christ's gospel is meant to be shared. The angels proclaimed to the shepherds. The shepherds told everybody who would listen. Unto us is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Folks, you have the very best of news. There's not a lot of good news coming out of any news agency today, is there? You read the news and it's like you have to work yourself up to just open the newspaper or to click on the the news link because it's so frustrating. This world is, is in a bad way right now. But you have the best of news. You carry it with you every day. It goes with you everywhere you go. It's the very essence of who you are. If any man be in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. You have that within you, the light of life, the spirit of truth. You have the news that can pull a man out of the pit of hell. You have the news which can transform the life of a man or a woman ravaged by sin into a life healed by grace. These people are around us every day. They don't always look like they're broken, but many of them are. They may have their house and their two cars and their 2.5 children. They may have their boat and their manicured yard. They put smiles on their faces, but they cry themselves to sleep at night. Their Facebook page is littered with selfies of smile after smile. Facebook's kind of passe now. It's Instagram, right? We don't keep up with much of that at this church, but for all of those happy smiles on their pictures, their lives are a mess. Their marriages are shambles. Their children are lost to sin. Their finances on the brink of collapse. They seek for some small sliver of joy in the new toy of the month. They live from weekend to weekend, hoping for a little enjoyment that will wash away their concerns, looking for that one thing that will make them forget, taking the pills to keep them from caring or perhaps to stop feeling or drinking that alcohol to keep them from thinking or feeling and worrying about those problems that are in their life that confront them the moment they wake up the next morning. You meet them at the cash register. You meet them at the restaurant table. You see them on your evening walk. You pass them in the store. You sit next to them on the bus or on the plane. You idly chat with them at the park. But how often do they hear from you that the solution to their pain has already come? How often do people hear that God has sent the glue that can bind up their broken lives from you? Did God reveal his son to you just so that you could hoard him to yourself? Is that really it? Why didn't God rapture you the moment you accepted Christ? Because there's still work for you to do. Our world is on fire. It is burning to the ground. Is there no one that will tell them of Christ? Men and women are in deep emotional, spiritual pain and you're literally holding the cure right here. Now, a lot of people don't want to hear it. That's not your fault. But many are thirsting for this message. Many are thirsting for meaning. And you hold that cup of cool water that can, through Christ, forever quench that thirst. I wonder what would happen 
if that angel appeared and made that announcement today. The angel would come with glad tidings of great joy, and the people would be so busy trying to catch a picture of him on blurry cam that they wouldn't even have heard what he said. The angel would have gone, and the people would be so busy trying to upload their blurry cams to YouTube, hoping it would go viral, that they would never even sought out the Christ child. We're, we're a distracted people. We're a misguided people. Are we so distracted ourselves today that we can't trouble ourselves to spread the news of the Christ child to others? Are we so afraid of, of tainting ourselves by the stains of the world that you won't even go into the world to meet their need? Are you so afraid of losing the approval of the world that you simply can't bring yourself to tell them the truth? This final point is embodied in the response of the shepherds that Jesus Christ's gospel is meant to be shared. And if we don't do it, we who know it, we talked about in, in Sunday school, there's a lot of people out there that, claim, that are claiming truth that, that don't have it. There's, what, 1.6, 1.8 billion Muslims who don't have it. There's the vast majority of the 1.2 billion Christians on record that don't have it. And then there's another 4 billion still in this world who need it. And if we aren't busy in our own area about the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then, then, then what are we doing here? All right? Let's close in prayer.